0: the Second London Baptist Confession to Chapter 9 on free will. And as you're turning there, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Our Holy Father, we thank you again for this Lord's Day. And we thank you for providentially and mercifully gathering our steps here. In this sacred place, in this sacred assembly. Lord, we are mindful this morning of those brothers and sisters of ours in Christ who cannot, because of sickness, be with us today, and we just ask your mercies to visit them much throughout this day. We pray that they will, by your grace and mercy, recover quickly from being laid aside with sickness. But Lord, we thank you that for those of us here that we are here by your mercy and kindness and with a holy anticipation that by the spirit of god through the word of god you will speak to our hearts opening our hearts and giving us a sanctified understanding And working a sanctified conviction in each of us that even today we will be fashioned a little more into the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Redeemer. And to that end, Father, we pray that as we return to this study on the subject of free will, we pray earnestly holy spirit to give us ears to hear and to develop in each of us a more layered and clear understanding to a doctrine of your holy word that for many fellow christians is so confusing but lord we trust in you this morning that there'll be no confusion These things we earnestly and humbly ask for the sake of our Lord Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, let's begin with reading paragraphs 2 and 3 of chapter 9. In the Second Lenten Baptist Confession of Free Will. Paragraphs 2 and 3. Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. And then paragraph three, man by his fall into a state of sin, has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And now let's open up God's word. John chapter 6. John chapter 6 will start at verse 41, reading to verse 44. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So reads the infallible, the inerrant Word of the Living God. We return to our present exposition in the Second London Confession, where last week we started our exposition of chapter 9 on the subject of free will. Our beginning focus in this chapter centered on paragraph one, which unveils a general statement about man's will. From this paragraph, we consider three principal answers concerning the truth about free will. And these principles read as follows First, God has given man's will natural liberty and power to act upon choice. This simply means that we all have the God invested faculty to make real choices. Second, our choices are not determined by any necessity of nature to do good or evil. This principle teaches that there is no room within the biblical concept of free will for biological determinism or psychological syndromes. Rather, when a person chooses evil or chooses relative good, it is a choice which cannot be determined in such a way to undermine the validity and culpability of their choice. To say it another way, we are all responsible for the choices we make. All of us. We're all responsible for the choices we make. And we'll answer for every one of those choices. And then the last principle we considered is this. The choices we make, are determined by who we are. The choices we make are determined by who we are. This last principle is so critical to our understanding about free will. Contrary to what so many in the church think about free will, the choices we make are never separate from who we are by nature. In fact, where our choices emanate, where they proceed from, is our nature. This clearly shows that whatever freedom we do have with the choices we make, it is always limited by what we are by nature. And this biblical principle about free will is going to resurface in our study today. Now, concerning today's study in chapter nine, I want us to consider paragraphs two and three. These two paragraphs, along with paragraphs four and five, are giving us the biblical pictures of at man's will through different stages of redemptive history. So then with paragraphs 2 and 3, we'll be underscoring man's will before the fall and man's will after the fall. To begin with, then, let's consider first man's will before the fall. Reading paragraph 2. Man in his state of innocency had freedom and power to will and do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet was, un, was, it was not mutable or was mutable so that he might fall from it. But yet was mutable so that he might fall from it. James Renahan entitles this paragraph as Man in Innocency... A mutable being. That descriptive is well put and captures succinctly what paragraph 2 wants to emphasize in this chapter on free will. Here is Adam and Eve prior to their fall into sin and their state is one of innocency. By this term, innocency, the second line of confession is telling us what God's word reports concerning man in his original creation as one who is free from any guilt of sin and thereby living as a morally perfect human. This is why Ecclesiastes 7.29 is referenced in this paragraph. It tells us that God made man upright. The word upright is the translation of the Hebrew word yashar, which means straight, even, level, just, and righteous. In relation to God, man was made with that spiritual and moral constitution that would please and obey God in all things. This is how Adam and Eve lived before God preceding the fall. Unpacking this truth further then, the second London Confession goes on to state that man had freedom and power to will and do that which was good and well-pleasing to God. Here... We see the stark contrast between man before and after the fall. Forgoing their plunge into sin, Adam and Eve, in heart and deed, not only had the freedom not to sin, but they had the ability not to sin. Since they were innocent of sin and its guilt and power, their will to choose knew nothing of the bondage that we know as fallen sinners. Moreover, what they could actually do, what they had the power to carry out was a sin-free life, a life that could always be good and well-pleasing to God. But despite their freedom and power to will and do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, Adam and Eve were equally free and able to sin. And here we need to understand, God did not confirm them in their state of innocency. While he made man upright, he also made man to be mutable. This means, of course, that the state of man and his original creation was changeable. So then Adam and Eve were morally perfect, but they could fall from that perfection. Perfection. And this is what God, in fact, warned Adam and Eve would happen if they chose to disobey him. So the second line of confession reads regarding our first parents, but yet was mutable, so that he might fall from it. So here is man in his original state, able not to sin, Able to sin. His will before the fall could go either way. It could go either way. And we know the rest of the sad story, don't we? And that brings us now to paragraph three in chapter nine here in the second line of confession. From man's will before the fall, let's now look and consider man's will after, after the fall. Reading paragraph three, man by his fall into a state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man being altogether reversed from that good and dead in sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to Prepare himself thereunto. There is no paragraph composed in chapter 9 that is more critical to understand under this subject and doctrine of free will than paragraph 3. One reason this paragraph holds such importance is because. What is expressed in these words is the grim reality we see and face every day in a world full of fallen sinners. It is all of humanity in a state of sin. That's Romans 5 and verse 6 is referenced in this paragraph which says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Look at how humanity is described in Romans 5 and verse 6. Weak and ungodly. The term translated weak can also be rendered helpless. The point, therefore, Paul is making by employing this term in the context of Christ dying for us is that the Lord Jesus did not wait for us to start helping ourselves, but he sacrificed himself in our behalf when we were altogether helpless. We could do nothing. Absolutely nothing. But not only were we helpless to save ourselves, we were also a people who were ungodly. We were ungodly. Jesus did not die for good people. He did not die for good people. He died for the ungodly. This word can be translated as wicked or impious or sinful. Man, in his state of sin, has no love or trust or reverence for God whatsoever. He hates God and poses himself as God's enemy by both his life and character. But, understand, this isn't true of just a few derelicts across the spectrum of human history. This is the consequence which sin has brought upon the nature of humanity as a whole. All of humanity, therefore, is in a state of sin. But the fact of man's fallen condition as a sinner is not the only importance which paragraph 3 brings to our attention here in chapter 9. This paragraph is crucial to our understanding because, listen it confesses what most Christians in our day either do not confess because of ignorance or will not confess because of their own pride. The great and awful theological truth expressed here is the dreadful reality known as moral inability. As we read here, man in his state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. While man is still free to choose, yet his freedom of choice, as we have learned, is limited by his nature. And since man's nature as a fallen sinner is sinful then he has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. And we must take notice as to how careful the confession is to qualify what kind of good man as a sinner is incapable of doing on his own. Look at it. Look at what it says. It is to any spiritual good accompanying salvation to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. We must not miss this. This is is huge. Man's fall into a state of sin has not bankrupted man's capability of doing good and even honorable things in a humanitarian sense. This is what the Protestant reformers called a civic virtue. Virtue or civic righteousness. Sinners then retain a capability as image bearers of God to will right things such as obeying the laws, aiding and comforting the sick, etc., etc. However, what fallen man cannot do, indeed what he is wholly incapable of doing, is that which pleases God and thereby has no ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So let's get this straight. Man as a sinner can feed the hungry, build hospitals, and clean the streets. But when it comes to doing that which puts him right with God, he has neither the will nor the ability for such things. This is why Romans 8 and verse 7 is referenced here. In the first clause of paragraph 3, as it describes fallen man's spiritual state in relation to God as a mind that is set on the flesh, which turns man's entire nature in hostility to God, whereby, the scripture tells us there, whereby he does not and cannot submit himself to God's law. A fallen sinner in his sinfulness, may be able to obey the traffic light, but he cannot obey God's law. Get the difference. Understand the distinction there. He can be the most outstanding, law-abiding citizen by the world's standards, promoting the welfare of humanity as a philanthropist. Par excellence, but when it comes to worshiping, serving, and trusting the true and living God, man in his sinfulness cannot and will not because, as a sinner, he hates God. This is what he is by nature. By nature. Thus, his will to choose, his will to choose as a fallen sinner. Will always be in rebellion against God. Always. And so, proceeding then to the next clause in paragraph three, look at what we're told. So, as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, he is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Here in these words, the moral inability of the sinner is set forth in the most overt terms. First, he is altogether averse from that good. The good referred to is the spiritual good that accompanies salvation. To that good in particular, man as a sinner is altogether averse. By the term altogether is meant completely, entirely. While the word averse is from the Latin abatire, which means to turn away from, to withdraw. With this withdrawing, however, from from the spiritual good which accompanies salvation, understand it is a withdrawing that stands in opposition to everything God promises in salvation through Christ. So here we're reminded of what Jesus said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3 19 and 20 of fallen humanity in their sinful state that they love the darkness. And hate the light. They love the darkness and they hate the light. The light, of course, referring to the incarnation of God's eternal Son, Christ our Lord, which is proclaimed in the saving gospel. Sinners by nature are completely opposed to the spiritual good which the gospel preaches and promises. And you don't have to teach them to be opposed. They are opposed by nature. It is the native air they breathe. Second, man in his sin is dead in sin. Dead. The obvious biblical reference here cited in paragraph 3 is Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 and 5 where Paul the Apostle is rehearsing to the Ephesian Christians what their spiritual condition was before God saved them. They were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Biologically alive, but spiritually dead to God and to the things of God. This truth about man's sinful state is making it painfully clear that man's spiritual problem is not that he is just sick. Oh, it's far worse than a sickness, friend. He's dead. He is dead. So so let's understand what the Scripture is teaching here about man in his fallen, sinful condition. There is nothing moving him Toward Christ in his heart and soul. Everything in him says no to Christ. Everything. He has no interest, no desire, no inclination for anything Jesus is, has, or offers to sinners for salvation. He is spiritually dead in sin. This is why in Ezekiel 36 and verse 26, God says that in order to receive the new heart that can only come from Him, the Lord has to first remove what? The heart of stone. The heart of stone. The heart of stone is a metaphor. Describing the spiritually dead condition of the lost sinner. And so therefore in the new birth, in being born again, regeneration, what is God doing? He is giving us a new heart whereby he's removing the old heart, the sinful, the heart of stone. The heart of stone. Third, because of these spiritual realities which set him in rebellion and opposition to God, the second London Confession rightly concludes that man in his state of sin is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Here is the rub with moral inability sinful man with his sinful will has no power whatsoever to turn to Christ or even to prepare himself for such saving conversion. Now, I ask you, is this biblical? Many Christians would argue and say no. So I'm asking, is this biblical? And my answer is most assuredly it is. (laughs) Indeed, John 6:44 the very passage that we read at the beginning of this study a passage of scripture that is referenced here in paragraph 3 John 6:44 clarifies this truth like no other text of scripture our lord says no one can come to me unless he exercises his free will Is that what it says? No. No. It says no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up, the one the Father is drawing to the Son, I will raise him up on the last day. And I'll say this as a footnote. There are many Christians, because I've had many of them in the past argue this with me, that the Father draws everybody. That is, everyone without exception. Jesus makes an exception. Those the Father draws to Him, what else does He say about them? He says, And I will raise them up on the last day. That's very exclusive. Not inclusive, exclusive. There is a peculiar people, an exclusive people, whom the Father is drawing to the Son. And, as Jesus says in verse 37 of John 6, which I like as much as I like verse 44, our Lord says in verse 37, all that the Father gives me will do what? Will come to me. Will come to me. There's no, well, they might come if they choose. No, that's not what Jesus says. He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And these the Father has given to the Son are these whom the Father draws to the Son and these are the ones whom the Son will raise up on the last day. So if the Father, according to the thinking of some Christians, draws everyone without exception, then we need to start embracing the heresy of universalism Because then that means no one will go to hell. This is why you have to keep things in context. You got to keep things in context. You don't build a whole entire theology out of one verse, you got to keep it in context. Because what I just showed you and proved to you is that Jesus was already saying something about these the Father draws to him. These are those same people the Father has actually given to the Son. And these and these only will in fact come to the Son. They will come to him. It's not if. It's not maybe. It's not might. It's not, well, there's a 99% chance they may come. No, it is that they will come to the Son. We call that effectual calling or irresistible grace. Oh, they're coming. They're coming. But, as we also know, they will be coming to the sun because, as we learned last week, they had their nature changed. And so now their will to choose has been liberated to choose things that they never would choose before. They now lay hold of Christ and freely do so only because of what God has already done, what He's already done in them. So, looking more closely then at John 6 no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. That's a universal negative. No one. So no one is excluded from what Jesus is asserting here. And what our Lord declares is that no one has the power or ability to come to him. The verb translated, can, is the Greek verb "dunatai," which carries the idea of having absolute ability, absolute power. But in this case of man's sinfulness as a sinner, He has no such ability in the least degree whatsoever to close with Christ on his own. In fact, to slam the door on any possibility that maybe there is a seed of ability in the sinner to come to Christ by his own will, Jesus says that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. The term unless is emphasizing what we call a necessary condition. A necessary condition. If a sinner is going to be truly converted to Christ, there is only one condition necessary to effect this God the Father must draw the sinner to Christ. That must happen. And this drawing is not an impotent wooing. But it is a supernatural, omnipotent power effectually bringing the sinner to saving conversion. So, in the light of this biblical truth, the second line of confession rightly and accurately confesses That man, by his fall into a state of sin, is not able, he is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. Commenting on this dire truth, James Renahan wrote the following. There are no seekers. Man, because of his fall and left to himself, can do nothing to please God. He cannot take the smallest baby step in the direction of God. In fact, because he is an idolater and a sinner, He will always of himself freely and willfully choose whatever is contrary to God. He does not and cannot cooperate with God in salvation. To the contrary, his will always freely chooses to sin. This is why Romans 3.11 says... There is none who seeks after God, not even one. Not even one. William Carey, the father of modern missions, when he went to India, he went convinced, convicted of the truth of John 6 44. Otherwise, William Carey never would have gone to India. Because Carey knew that those people groups in the nation of India, he knew that their will as sinners dead in sin was always to freely choose to sin. There were no seekers after God in any part of India, as far as William Carey knew and was concerned. So he went with the conviction, God has a people there. He has a people that he's given to the son, and those people will come to the son. They will come to Christ. Did it happen immediately? No. It was seven years after the fact that he was there that he saw the first convert. Seven years. Now, that's saying a lot about persevering grace, by the way. That's saying a whole lot because we're talking here about the 1790s, the early 1800s. This is not 21st century. It was a hard country. A very hard country. And a country that Carrie said was nothing but darkness. Nothing but darkness. William Carey went to India knowing what what James Renahan says, there are no seekers. There are no seekers. So why would he do such a crazy thing then like going to India where he knew there were no seekers? Well, it's what I just said. He knew... He was convinced because of what Scripture teaches the Father has given to people. He's given to people in India to the Son, and they will come. And they will come by the preaching of the gospel. And so we know the rest of Kerry's story. He never returned to England from whence he came, he remained in India for 40 years. 26 churches were planted. Twenty-six churches were planted over a forty-year time. That is astonishing. That is astonishing. And William Carey did not use one single method of carnal man's ideas that we would that we would know today as seeker-sensitive, user-friendly, church-growthy kind of methods. All Carrie knew was that God is sovereign. God will save sinners, God alone, and he does it by the means of and through the the instrument of preaching Christ. So, when it comes to salvation then, when it comes to salvation, what what is it that paragraph three of chapter nine in the Second London Confession? What is it saying to us in summary? It's saying this: When it comes to any hope a sinner will have to be made right with God and enter into God's kingdom, it will never be in the sinner. It will never be the sinner in his sin where the hope of his salvation is found. Never. Never. Only the eternal living God who is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit can truly rescue sinners from their sin. Making them a new creation whereby they are no longer under sin's dominion but forever under grace as God's people. That is the glorious truth of Holy Scripture. And for those of us sitting here today, we are a testimony to that. Because were it not for the sovereign grace of God in Jesus Christ, none of us would be sitting here today as believers in Christ. None of us would. If I were to go around this room and ask you who profess, who profess faith in Jesus, where do you give all the credit in being a Christian? I know, at least in this church I know, can't say this about every church, but I know in this church, you would confess and say, by the grace of God alone, in Jesus Christ alone. All the credit goes to God and Christ. I take no credit. I take no credit. Left to myself, left to all my free will, as a fallen sinner, I will freely run as hard as I can to hell. That'll be the best my free will can do. which isn't saying much of anything because there is no one by nature who seeks after God, so therefore I'm running at, at a speed of sound, as it were, to break and bust the gates of hell wide open were it not for God and his mercy and grace who stopped me in my path And turn me around and turn me toward Him because He regenerated me. He called me to Himself. He gave me to His Son. And by faith, as a gift from Him to me, the sinner, I came running to Christ. All the glory goes to God. That's the point. That's the point. And, brothers and sisters, we will never come to a place as Christians on this side of glory where we don't need to continue to hear that. Because there's enough pride left in us because of the flesh that somehow in the most subtle way, we may try to take a little bit of the credit. And so we have to be reminded of these things from the word of God again and again and again. But thank God that we've had the privilege and the joy this morning of so hearing these great truths that have truly set us free. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, truly, Lord, we do glory in your grace alone. Truly, we take not a shred of credit for what we are as believers in Christ. Our faith in Christ, our following after Christ, our love for Him, our trust in Him, our obedience to Him, Lord, we take no credit. Lord, we give all the praise and the honor and the glory to you alone. Indeed, we say with your prophet Jonah that salvation is of the Lord, because it truly is. And so Father, we thank you for reminding us of this great truth and in the way that you've reminded us by, helping us to see in such overt terms with such sharp clarity from your word and indeed from what our confession confesses from your word of the moral inability of sinful man apart from your grace in Christ. Lord, we pray that we will not forget these things. We pray that we'll not lose sight of them And even when we see lost, fallen men doing great, noble, humanitarian things for the sake of the world, especially then, Lord, let us not lose sight of the fact that a civic righteousness does not mean that such a person is right with you. It is only by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone that any sinner is made right with you. And that, Father, we confess with joy for the sake of Christ. In his name we pray. Amen and amen.